So I'll just wait for a couple of minutes. It's, the clocks are not the same. The clock over in the interview area said it was already gone past four. Anyway, a couple of minutes and then we start the final Sutta class for this retreat. Although, many people have said what a good retreat it is and have asked for it to be extended. <laughs> so anyway, the Oh, is Eileen? She hasn't come in yet. Hopefully you did see the Sutta class, uh, the topic for this afternoon. It was, I mentioned it yesterday, the Upakalesa Sutta, about imperfections. So we'll just, I'll wait for a few minutes till everyone comes in. It's a couple of minutes to go. This is like hay fever sometimes when it's very sunny. You get a bit of irritation in your nose. My father had cancer, uh, not cancer, had asthma. And so I never had asthma, but similar, just allergic to uh, some of the pollen at this time of the year. And because there was lots of pollen at this time of the year, I used to get into the habit, as soon as the range retreat was over, of flying overseas. Because <laughs> when the hay fever was the worst, when you see the farmers you know, cutting their hay, that was when it was you know, very nasty. So then I'd get onto the, in the aircraft, and as soon as it got in the aircraft, the sneezing would stop, because it was just uh, filtered air. You got overseas, and even though it may have more pollution, but nevertheless, so there's no hay fever. So that's, if I sneeze, that's where it's coming from. It's not COVID, it's not monkeypox, it's not whatever things you sneeze for. Anyway, that's where it's from. I know it very well. It's what monks get. <laughs> I don't know, some sort of disease. Okay, 23 seconds to go. Sorry? Yeah. Okay, I think everybody, all the important ones are in. <laughs> oh, no, when I say that, somebody else walks through the door. <laughs> okay, it's four o'clock, so here we go. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Alahato Sama Sambuddhasa. Excellent. So, one of the reasons why I did choose this for the final uh, Sutta class of this retreat, it does deal with the Nimittas, but also it has some other wonderful points to it. It starts off 
with you know, realizing that even your monks and nuns who you support and you see them living just inspiring lives, that sometimes they're not inspiring. I'm talking about the monks, not the nuns. <laughs> and these were the monks in the city of Kosambi who were having these big arguments. And I would, I would just say the extra bits as we go along. <coughs> Some of these other stories which happened at the time, it doesn't mention here, it's in other suttas. But nevertheless, this sutta mentions just even though the Buddha came along to try and fix up the problem, still they were just so crazy you know, with their arguments and their views. Even the Buddha couldn't solve the problem. And number two, after that the Buddha just decided just to wander away. And that's where you have many of those Dhammapada quotes. Uh, better to wander alone than wander with, with fools. And so the Buddha just left and started visiting a few other monasteries. There's one monastery there where just one monk lived and he gave him a nice discourse. But then he went to this other monastery and I always say this is my favorite monastery in the suttas where Anuruddha, and, I was getting wrong, Analia and uh, Kimbala lived. And those three monks they lived in this like, perfect community. And I always sometimes tell that to the monks when I give them a talk, saying this is the ideal sort of community, how monks should live together. And then after, he just asked these three monks about their meditation practice, and that's when they started saying, yeah, they were getting into some deep meditation, but they had problems with their nimittas and they couldn't actually make use of them and take them deeper into jhanas and because of that the Buddha gave this wonderful discourse on just the nimittas and how to develop them and the obstacles to them and how to overcome those obstacles and that became the Upakilesa Sutta 128 Imperfections. Now, kilesa means like defilements, you know, problems. Usually meant greed, hatred, and delusion. Or sometimes even greed and hatred, that's a bit too hard. You know, wanting, uh, negativity, and delusion is much better than ignorance. Ignorance is what you can overcome at a university. There's some very educated people at university, but they haven't overcome delusion, they're not enlightened yet. And it reminds me, I'm going to go over time again, I know, it reminds me of the story of the professor. Have, have you all read the, uh, one of the uh, follow-up books to open the door of your heart uh, called Good, Bad, Who Knows? And the last story there about the professor the professor of philosophy at a great university heard that a new restaurant was opening up in town. And this professor was a gourmet, he loved his food. So he rang up to make a booking, but this restaurant had a Michelin-starred uh, chef. So he, all he could do was making a booking for about three months waiting list. 
But he said, no, I'll take that booking. So he booked the place that uh, for three months. It's just like, it's even uh, as hard as getting into Jhana Grove on a retreat. This is a Michelin-rated retreat centre. <laughs> is it? How's the food been here? How many stars? Zero stars. <laughs> Five stars, great. But anyway, he waited and three months went past and so that evening he turned up to the restaurant. You can't just, you know, just wear a singlet and a jumper and just thongs. He wore this really good suit and a nice tie. You really have to, you know, be posh to get into these restaurants. And so the maitre d' So I checked him and said, have you got a reservation, sir? And he gave his idea. Oh, welcome, Professor. You have a reservation tonight. So they took him into this posh restaurant and they sat him down on the chair reserved for him at this beautiful mahogany table. And they had amazing lighting there, like standing lamps and a bit of ceiling light. It was subdued. So enough he could see the food and read the, the menu, but not, not overly, so he didn't need to, no one needed to see him. It was like secluded. And it was actually very warm and very welcoming light. And everything on the table was absolutely top class. Even the napkins were just so beautifully embroidered on the edges and you know, silver um, tableware. And then the... Uh, not the maitre d', but the waiter, dressed like a butler, came out to him and said, here is the menu, sir. And then the professor, he read the menu. from top, Even the menu was on parchment, not on little paper like at McDonald's. I haven't been to McDonald's, I don't know. But anyway, it was on parchment, like written in calligraphy. And he read the menu. He was very, very happy and had his his reservation, he read the menu and then he ate the menu and he paid his bill and left. Because the professor didn't know the difference between the food and the menu. That's <laughs> I hope there's no professor, professors of philosophy here, <laughs> otherwise they might sue me. Well that's actually what it's like. People, they may be a professor of Buddhist philosophy. They know the menu better than I do. But they've never eaten the food. So anyway, that's why I love this particular sutta, because it doesn't make a difference between the food and the menu. So here we go. On one occasion, the Buddha was living at Kosambi in Gosita's Park. And I think that Kosambi was... Now, there's a confluence of two rivers. I know it's called Allahabad, I think, if I'm correct, but the original town of Kosamba has been built over many times. It's a very small town. Small. You've been to Kosambi? Yes. Okay. It's a long journey from Delhi. Okay, yeah. But even so, there's. Many stupas and all that, not dug up yet. Okay, yeah. Excellent. Because sometimes, you've got to be careful, because sometimes when people say they know where these places are, sometimes they're not. Okay. I'm, I, the driver doesn't know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> I just at the 
lit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Kosambi was, yeah. And did, did people argue in that village? <laughs> no. Okay, anyway. Uh, on that occasion, the monks at Kosambi had taken to quarreling and brawling and were deep in disputes. They say stabbing each other with verbal daggers. It doesn't say the reason for those arguments, but uh, it says in the Vinaya that what the reason for those arguments were is that they had two very senior monks. One was the Vinaya master, and the other one was the Dhamma master. And they were, because they were both experts in their own particular fields, that they had a bit of jealousy towards one another. But more than them, the students, you know, my master is better than your master, type of idea. And so what happened, the, I think it was the Dhamma master went into the toilet, you know, did his business, and he you know, washed himself, like he should do, but then there was no water left for the next monk to go in there. So he left the, the water jar empty. And then it was like the next monk who went in there, ah, oh, we've got him. That's against the rules. You can't just go into a toilet and leave the water jar empty to somebody else, for somebody else. It's like here in the West, it's like going into the toilet and using the last piece of toilet paper and not leaving anything else for the next person who goes in. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It's happened to me. You go into the toilet and no toilet paper. <laughs> it's very discomforting. But anyway, he was just going to get some more water later on, but he hadn't got anything right there. But anyway, a small thing like that, then the Vinaya monks and the Dhamma uh, teachers, students, they had an argument. You can't do this, that's wrong, that's not right. And it's amazing just how small things can lead to big arguments. But anyway, in the end, so the they were really upset at each other. And then a certain monk went to the Buddha. I like the, also the way they say, stabbing each other with verbal daggers. It's amazing just how words can be so sharp sometimes. And they go right inside of you. But anyway, when you become uh, a, sen <coughs> a senior monastic, it's like you have Kevlar jackets underneath your robe. And so the knives can't come in. Is that right, Kevlar? <coughs> okay, so they can't go in. Uh, then a certain monk went to the Buddha and after paying homage to him, he stood at one side and said, Venerable Sir, the monks here at Kosambi have taken to quarreling and brawling and are deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers. It will be good, Venerable Sir if the Buddha would go to those monks out of compassion. The Buddha consented in silence. Then the Buddha went to those monks and said to them, Enough, monks! Let there be no quarreling, brawling, wrangling or dispute. Now the Buddha was a teacher. He was a master. This is what happens when you have a master 
To be a real master, you need slaves. <laughs> and so what happened next was, Wait, venerable sir, let the Buddha, the Lord of the Dhamma, live at ease, devoted to a pleasant abiding here and now. We are the ones who will be responsible for this quarreling, boarding, wrangling and dispute. That's how they responded to the Buddha. That's why when you are in arguments, people go crazy. For a second time, for a third time, they always do things three times in Buddhism, as you know. <laughs> Enough monks, let there be no quarreling, brawling, wrangling or dispute. And for a third time, that monk said to the Buddha, Wait, Venerable Sir, we are the ones who will be responsible for this quarreling, brawling, wrangling and dispute. They paid no attention to the Buddha. Then when it was the morning, the Buddha dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, entered Kosambi for alms. And when he had wandered for alms in Kosambi and had returned from his alms round, after his meal, he set his resting place in order, took his bowl and outer robe, and while standing, uttered these verses before he departed. When many voices shout at once, None considers himself a fool. Though the Sangha is being split, no one thinks themselves to be at fault. They have forgotten thoughtful speech. They, the talk is obsessed by words alone. Uncurb their mouths, they bawl at will. None knows what leads him so to act. He abused me, he struck me, he defeated me. He robbed me. In those who harbour thoughts like these, hatred will never be allayed. He abused me. He struck me. He defeated me. He robbed me. In those who do not harbour such thoughts like these, hatred will be readily will be allayed. For in this world, Hatred is never allayed by further acts of hate. It is allayed by non-hatred, by metta. This is the fixed and ageless law. Those others do not recognize that here we should restrain ourselves. But those wise ones who realize this at once end all their enmity. Breakers of bones and murderers those who steal cattle, horses, wealth, those who pillage the entire realm, when even these can act together, why can't you not do so too? If one can find a worthy friend, a virtuous, steadfast companion, then overcome all threats of danger and walk with him content and mindful. If one can't find a worthy friend, no virtuous, steadfast companion, then as a king leaves his conquered realm, walk like a tusker, an elephant, in the woods alone. Better it is to walk alone. There is no companionship with fools. Walk alone and do no evil, at ease like a tusker in the woods. Then having uttered these standards while standing, the Buddha went to the village of Balakana, Balaka Lonakara. 
you started you know, a journey into what eventually led to be the Parilayaka forest. And in that Parilayaka forest, you spent the range retreat there. It's one of the beautiful stories which I like. We haven't got a, a, an image of the Buddha in the Parilayaka forest. And if you ever see one, we have one over in Nolamara, and it's, there's an elephant there and a monkey offering food and drink to the Buddha. And the story behind that was that uh, the Buddha in the forest, he found a nice little place for the range retreat, but this was in the jungle. How would he get any food? And then he f- this elephant came up, and the elephant was also fed up with all the other people in his herd. It just, you know, people always just bothering him. And so the two of them you know, were away from their companions, the Buddha away from the Sangha, the elephant away from other elephants, uh, in the midst of the forest. And the elephant and the Buddha, they, you can say they hit it off, they understood each other. And so the elephant said that, you know, he could find some food for the Buddha every day. And that's what happened. Every day, the elephant offered food to the Buddha. Imagine how much incredible merit that elephant got. He didn't know how lucky he was. And from that time on, it is allowable, it's part of the Vinaya, if you have an elephant or a monkey or any animal who offers food to you, you don't need an anagarika or an attendant. The elephant can offer you the dana. And that is true. One of the monks in Thailand, somebody found a monkey who was, you know, sometimes that they put these monkeys in cages, I don't know what they do with them, it's really cruel. They found a monkey in the market, they brought it, and they took it to one of the monks uh, in uh, the northeast of Thailand, one of Wat Bapong monks. It was... Uh, I'm just trying to remember the monk's name. But anyway, this monk was a very good trainer, and this head monk, he trained the monkey to actually to climb up the banana trees whenever there was any fruit, to pluck the bananas off the tree, and then the monkey would come up to the head monk with the freshly plucked bananas. It was Ajahn Anong. Actually, he came to Perth a couple of times and he took the bananas off the tree and he would offer it to the monk then afterwards put his hand up in salutation. The monkey knew how to offer bananas to the head monk. And I never saw that, but so many other monks did. And it was true, but then Ajahn Chah heard about this and he went up to that monk and said, There's too many people coming to your monastery and all they want to see is a monkey offer food to you. They're not interested in keeping precepts or learning the Dhamma or meditating. They just come to see your monkey. (laughs) Would you like to see that? A monkey offering bananas to, say, Ayachanda? He shouldn't just come for that, come and take precepts or listen to some Dhamma. So he had to sort of stop that. But it was true that 
animals can offer food to you. I mean, some animals in our forest, you know, just like kangaroos, and we haven't done that yet, but maybe one day I can see if I can get some kangaroos to offer me fish and chips. <laughs> I think it'll be a long time. <laughs> but anyway, the monkey would offer, <laughs> that's only a joke, when the monkey, the elephant would offer food every day, and then the monkey saw that. I wonder what's this elephant doing? And he watched. And this monkey just got so much inspiration. And he said, I'll, I'll offer something. I forget what the monkey got. Whether it was, I think it was some honey. So the monkey got some honey for the Buddha and offered it to the Buddha. And the Buddha accepted it. And they, according to the story, the monkey was so overjoyed the immediately come with result of offering honey to the Buddha. He started swinging through the, the forest branches, just really so overjoyed, and he lost his mindfulness. He missed one of the branches and fell down on the ground to his death. The monkey died. But don't worry, because the monkey died, having just done such a wonderful piece of dana, of offering uh, some honey to the Buddha. The monkey immediately, I think, got reborn in the Tower Tingsa realm. And so he went into a high heavenly realm. Just an ordinary monkey. He got promoted so quickly. So it wasn't a sad story. To me it was like kind of sweet. You know, this beautiful monkey just had one moment of inspiration. He died, but he got reborn in a, much, a really much better place. But anyway, the uh, elephant kept on offering food to the Buddha. And then at the end of the range retreat, the Buddha had gone missing. No one knew where he was. So Ananda and a few of the other monks went looking for the Buddha. Oh, beforehand, I should say, that once the Buddha disappeared from Kosambi, the lay people were actually were quite upset with those monks. Look, because of all your arguing, the Buddha's left us. He tried to stop the arguments, but you wouldn't listen. So how do the lay people look after the Sangha and stop such shenanigans? They had a meeting and they all agreed they will not offer any food to any of those monks until they reconciled. You might try arguing with the monks and you know, using logic, but when the monks go on arms round, they don't get any food for a week. The monks get very listening to what the lay people are saying. <laughs> so when they were very hungry, they met together and they decided to reconcile for the sake of their tubbies. <laughs> So sometimes, you know, you do have a lot of power over the monks. But one of the problems is these days, you know, the monks can have their own stash of cash, which means they don't really, you don't have that power anymore. I always think that's one of the problems when monks have money. Far too independent. Anyway, 
in those days the monastic community reconciled and they realised just how stupid they were arguing and so they lived in harmony for the rest of the range retreat then at the end of the range retreat didn't know where the Buddha had gone so they started looking for him and soon Ananda and a few other monks they found the Buddha in the Parilayaka forest being looked after by the elephant and so the Buddha told the elephant, it was the end of the range retreat said, and I'll have to go and carry on my duty to look after the monks, so together again now but he asked the elephant, can you please you know, give the dana tomorrow to the Sangha of monks and with Ananda and with the other monks who'd come on that journey and the elephant really worked his butt off, you might say worked so hard getting enough food for everybody and offered those food, mostly fruit and stuff offered all that food to this uh, Sangha, not that many, maybe don't actually say how many, maybe I'll think about ten or something and then the Buddha and the monks accepted that and then when the Buddha left with the other monks the elephant was so heartbroken uh, you know the person he'd be staying three months with imagine staying three months with a Buddha goodness gracious, you know, I'd, I'd probably be heartbroken too maybe but, <laughs> but anyway that poor elephant died heartbroken and the elephant immediately got reborn in the, the Tusita realm so we have had a happy ending that was the story of the elephant and the monkey who looked after the Buddha and just the amazing sort of good karma those two got in those three months so you don't lose out but anyway, that's what happened in the Parilaika forest. And you do have these beautiful Buddha statues. If you see them, a Buddha sitting there and an elephant and a monkey paying respect and offering the Buddha food. Anyway, oops, I'm going to go over time again. Then having uttered these standards while standing, the Buddha went to the village of Balaka Lonakara. It was later on he got to the Parilaika forest. On that occasion, the Venerable Bhagu was living at the village of Bala Lonakara. And when the Venerable Bhagu saw the Buddha coming in the distance, he prepared a seat and set out water for washing the feet. You see that even now when people go to, especially the Srankan people often do this. And I arrive at their house in a car, I'm wearing my sandals, and I get out of the car, can you please take your sandals off because I want to wash your feet. I said, but they're clean. That's not the point. Some monks, they had to take their socks off to have their feet washed. It's a, nice, it's a lovely tradition. The Buddha sat down on a seat made ready and washed his feet. Then the Venerable Bhagavad paid homage to the Buddha and sat down at one side. And the Buddha said to him, this is the usual way that senior monks or senior nuns just ask how the junior monks or nuns are going. They say, I hope, you are, I hope you are keeping well, monk. I hope you are comfortable. I hope you are having no trouble getting alms food. I am keeping well to the Buddha. I am comfortable and I am not having any trouble getting alms food. Then the Buddha instructed, urged, roused and gladdened the Venerable Bhagu 
with the talk on the Dhamma, after which he rose from his seat and went to the eastern bamboo park. This is my favorite example of a monastery in the time of the Buddha. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Anuruddha, the Venerable Nandiya, and the Venerable Kimbala were living at the eastern bamboo park. Anuruddha became a very famous monk. He was a monk who was at Kusinara when the Buddha passed away. And Anuruddha was also in his, uh, in his biography, in the Theragata. When he became a stream winner, you know, it was in no long time. And that was 17 years since ordaining. So even those monks, it takes a while. So at the end of the retreat you think, why am I not a stream winner yet? Why haven't I got Nimitz? Why haven't I got Jhanas? Come on, even Anuruddha took such a long time. But turned out in the end to be a great monk. <laughs> so anyway, uh, to the Eastern Bamboo Park. Now on that occasion, the Venerable Anuruddha, sorry, the Venerable Nandia, I got that one wrong, I said Analia, it was Nandia, sorry. Anuruddha, the Venerable Nandia and the Venerable Kimbala were living at the Eastern Bamboo Park. The park keeper saw the Buddha coming in the distance and, and said to him, Do not enter the park, recluse. There are three clansmen here seeking their own good. Do not disturb them. There's one interesting thing about that statement. Even the park keeper could not recognize the Buddha. There are many occasions in the suttas where people did not recognize the Buddha. Some people say that, you know, he had a flame out of his head and long ears. That is just the way it's uh, materialized in statues in these days. In those days, you couldn't tell him apart maybe from any other monk. So much so that one of my other favorite stories, <laughs> here we go again, was this monk, he was ordained by a disciple of the Buddha. This disciple of the Buddha you know, went away from the Ganges area to the west of India, and of course he had many disciples, and one of the disciples just was ordained by this disciple of the Buddha, and after his basic training, usually five years, then he said, I want to go and see the Buddha while he's still alive. So he traveled by walking all the way from the west of India to the Ganges Valley. And then one evening he got to a house, and where they would stay, many times, if there was like a Buddhist in the area, they would stay in his workshop, you know, which was just attached to the house. He said, is it okay if I, I stay in your workshop tonight? And the owner of the house said, yes, certainly. And he got some straw for him to sleep on. And then a few minutes later, another monk turned up. And the second monk said, is it okay if I sleep in your workshop too? And the first monk said, sure, no trouble. There's plenty of space for both of us. And then those two monks, they started meditating, as you do in the evening. And then the first monk who had arrived meditated really well. So the second monk also meditated very well. And they both meditated throughout the night without going to sleep. And in the early morning, when the first monk came out of meditation, the second monk came out of meditation too, 
The second monk said, you, you meditate very well. You know, who's your teacher? He said, oh, my teacher is this senior monk, a disciple of the Lord Buddha. And I finished my basic training, I'm travelling to see the Lord Buddha. And then the first monk asked the second monk, who's your teacher? And the second monk, I don't have a teacher, I am the Buddha. <laughs> That's a true story. And the first one said, Oh my goodness, I've been staying with the Buddha without paying proper respect. Bow, 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 bow. <laughs> Imagine what you would feel like. But the nice part of that story was that second, that first monk, who was a disciple of a disciple of the Buddha, didn't even recognize the Buddha when the Buddha came to stay the night in the same place with him. All he knew was the Buddha was a very good meditator. And so are you. So you can't say that the Buddha was recognizable. Of course he was eventually. Anyway, even in this case, the Buddha coming into the distance told the park keeper, or was told by the park keeper, don't come in. There are three clansmen seeking their own good. Don't disturb them. Then fortunately, Venerable Anuruddha heard the park keeper speaking to the Blessed One, the Buddha, and told him, Friend, park keeper, don't keep the Buddha out. That's our teacher, the Buddha who has come. Then the Venerable Ananda, Anuruddha sorry, went to the Venerable Nandiya and the Venerable Kimball and said, Come out, Venerable Sirs, come out. Our teacher, the Buddha, has come. Then all three went to meet the Buddha. One took his bowl and outer robe, one prepared a seat, and one set out water for washing the feet. The Buddha sat down on the seat made ready and washed his feet. Then those three venerable ones paid homage to the Buddha and sat down on one side. And the Buddha said to them, I hope you are keeping well, Anuruddha. I hope you are comfortable. I hope you are not having any trouble uh, getting alms food. And one little point here is like a point of Pali. When you have like three monks and you mention the senior, it applies, the same greeting applies to all of them. That's why it says in the commentary to the Satipatthana Suttas, when it says that having uh, weakened the uh, the, the first two hindrances, that implies all the five hindrances because it's the first two of a very common group. That's just a technical thing about the meaning of the prerequisite to doing Satipatthana meditation. Uh, sh surely, Venerable Sir, we are living in harmony with mutual appreciation, without disputing, Blending like tea and condensed milk, viewing each other. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's better. Viewing each other in harmony, mutual appreciation, blending like milk and water, it really says. Viewing each other with kindly eyes. And of all of those, the last one I like the best, like kindly eyes. What are kindly eyes? You know, you can notice kindly eyes, you get the meaning, this person is, is really 
wants to be of service and that's kind to you. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, when some of you come and sit down for the interviews, what do I say to you first of all? How can I be of service to you? I never say, what are you doing here? Who do you think you are? You've been here many times. Well, 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 well. <laughs> you don't say things like that. You say, how can I be of service to you? You're of service to me so many times. How can I be of service to you? Anyway, viewing each other with kindly eyes. But, Anuruddha, how do you live like that? Venerable Sir, remember this is in the context of the monks of Kosambi, you certainly weren't living like that. Venerable Sir, as to thus, I think, so as to that, I think thus, it is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me, that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards these venerables, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? And I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, Venerable Sir, but one in mind. Then Venerable Nandia and the Venerable Kimberla each spoke likewise, adding, that is how, Venerable Sir, we are living in concord, with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. I don't know, I've been a monk a long time, that's really inspiring to me. Just that, just description of their conduct. Maintaining bodily, verbal and mental acts of loving kindness towards your friends in the holy life, both openly and privately. Think what a gain it is that we have such monks and two nuns here in Bodhinyana Monastery or Janagra, whatever you want to call it, what a great gain that is for us. Do you agree? <laughs> Very good. What a great gain it is. We also have uh, Venerable Wimoka over there keeping the wall up straight. <laughs> Sorry. Was that verbal acts of kindness? I apologise. Okay, and good, good, Anuruddha, I hope you all abide diligent, ardent, and resolute. And this is a nice description of what it means to be diligent, ardent, and resolute. Does it mean in really striving, getting lots of energy up? Surely, Venerable Sir, we abide diligent, ardent, and resolute. But Anuruddha, how do you do that? Venerable Sir, this refers to the lifestyle of those monks. As to that, whichever of us returns first from the village with alms food, prepares the seats, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, and puts a refuse bucket in place. Whichever of us returns last, 
eats any food left over if they wish, otherwise they throw it away where there is no greenery or drop it into water where there is no life. This was just how not to pollute the local environment. And he puts, a, and then he puts away the seats and the water for drinking and for washing. He puts away the refuge bucket after washing it, and he sweeps out the refectory. Whoever notices that the pots of water for drinking, washing, or the latrine are low or empty, takes care of them. If they are too heavy for him, he calls someone else by a signal of the hand and they move it by joining hands. But because of this, we do not break out into speech. But every five days, we sit together all night discussing the Dhamma. That is how we abide diligent, ardent and resolute. What I, again I like about that, that they don't have a roster, so it's your turn to do it today. No, I did it yesterday, it's your turn. Instead, whoever returns first sets out everything in the uh, place where they eat. Whoever returns last cleans up after them. Not sort of a roster saying it's somebody's turn. If something needs to be done, they just do it. And if they need some help, they don't break into speech. They all know what's going on. And so they help out. And the other interesting thing is every five days they sit together all night and discuss the Dhamma. And, you know, sometimes we say here, every Wednesday night over in Bodhinyana Monastery, I give a talk. Instead of doing every five days, it's difficult to know what five days is, because, you know, we, we go according to a Western calendar. We know what the weekends are. But over, I remember going to see Ajahn Mahabur's monastery, and that's what happened there. They had a, a talk from Ajahn Mahabur, maybe once every five or six days. And you can tell that most of the evenings were free. But he would give a Dharma talk once every five days. Mostly. Good, good, Anuruddha. But while you abide thus, that's called diligent, ardent and resolute. While you abide thus, diligent, ardent and resolute, have you attained any, what they call superhuman states, distinction in knowledge and vision, worthy of the noble ones, a comfortable abiding? This is called Uttari Manusa Dhamma. Well, above the normal um, uh, experience of understandings of human beings. That's why superhuman, I don't mean Batman or, or who's the other ones? Superman, Superman yeah. Or, who else is there these days? Oh yeah, Spider-Man. I know Spider-Man because one of the monks got bitten by a spider <laughs> and said, you are so lucky, you may have powers now. <laughs> we never got those powers. <laughs> but anyway, wrong type of spider, never mind, bad luck. <laughs> but the superhuman states refer specifically. They're defined elsewhere as jhanas, the immaterial attainments, you call them attainments, obviously the stages of enlightenment. Those specifically are called the superhuman states. 
and they're exceptional, which is why that if you do get a jhana, you know, it, just, it is exceptional. You can do it, it's possible. Lay people did do it in the time of the Buddha, why not you? But it's exceptional, it's not a small thing. So when people sometimes say, I just had a little bit of happiness in my meditation, that must be jhanas. No way. These are fantastic states. And you can do it. Uh, and venerable sir, yeah, do you get into those states? And Anuruddha replies, Venerable sir, as we abide here, diligent, ardent and resolute, we perceive both light and a vision of forms. Soon afterwards, that light and a vision of forms disappear. But we have not discovered the cause for that. Even though they meditate alone, once every five days, they discuss Dharma together. So verse 16, the Buddha says, That nimitta should be penetrated, comprehended, Anuruddha, and this is where the first time the Buddha's mentioning the word nimitta. This is one of the reasons why I said the Buddha never talked about nimitta. Yes, it's here. And the Buddha replies, Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, I too perceived both light and a vision of forms. Soon afterwards, that light and a vision of forms disappeared. And I thought, what is the cause or condition why the light and vision of forms have disappeared. Then I considered thus, doubt arose in me, and because of the doubt my stillness, the samadhi, fell away. When my stillness fell away, the light and the vision of forms disappeared. I shall so act that doubt will not arise in me again. I don't know how many people have sat in this room, and in the interviews they said, no, it couldn't have been a limiter. It was just the kind of light, that's all. And not me, I could still hear some of the sounds outside, feel some of the body. I'm not that good a person, it couldn't have been an imitator. Doubt. And in all the time I've been teaching here, I'm being honest, about at least 90% or 95% of the time, people who've seen lights in the mind, it is an imitator. But what really um, I'm not impressed, but disturbed by, you might say disturbed, is how much that doubt, the first obstacle which the Buddha talks about, you just don't give yourself the benefit of doubt. You think it can't be a limiter. Not me. My meditation's not that good. When it is. So you so practice, you know, have a bit of confidence in your teacher. Even what the Buddha said here. Most times it is an imitator. As an Anuruddha, uh, make sure I don't go too far. As Anuruddha, I was abiding, diligent, ardent, and resolute. I perceived both light and a vision of forms, but soon afterwards the light and the vision of forms disappeared. I thought, what is the cause and condition why the light and the vision of forms have disappeared? Then I consider thus, inattention arose in me, and because of inattention, my stillness fell away. When my stillness fell away, that light and the vision of forms disappeared. 
I shall so act that neither doubt nor inattention will arise in me again. What is that inattention? Sometimes you see a nimitta and you think, no, I'm supposed to, be, supposed to be watching my breath. So you pay more attention to the breath than the nimitta. Don't do that. There's a nimitta there and you're enjoying yourself. Enjoy it, for goodness sake. Don't do anything. Let the mind choose. And the mind will always choose that which is the most refined and beautiful. The mind is smart. So don't give inattention thing. I'm supposed to be watching my breathing. Just if an imitator is there, that's what you watch. That's why that Emperor's Three Questions um, meditation, now is the most important time. Whatever it is in front of the mind right now, that's always the best meditation object in the world. So, you know, if there's a light coming up, I'm not quite sure if it's a light or not, doesn't matter. If it's right there, right now, care for it. And you soon find that actually was a limiter. <laughs> so, inattention. So, I shall so act that neither doubt nor inattention will arise in me again. As Anaruda, I was abiding diligent. I considered thus. The, I perceived the, soon afterwards the light and the vision of forms disappeared. I thought, what is the cause and condition why the light and the vision of forms have disappeared? I considered thus. Sloth and torpor arose in me. Because of sloth and torpor, my stillness fell away. When my stillness fell away, the light and the vision of forms disappeared. I shall sow out that neither doubt nor inattention nor sloth and torpor will arise in me again. This is the same old hindrances still working there. Their insidious, uh, sneaky work to stop you getting still. And the next one, of course, and this is number 19 here. This is one of the big ones. As Anaruda was abiding diligent, art and the resolute, I perceived both light and the vision of forms. Soon afterwards, the light and the vision of forms disappeared. I thought, what is the cause and condition why those light and vision of forms disappeared? I considered thus. Fear arose in me. And because of fear, my stillness fell away. When my stillness fell away, the light and the vision of forms disappeared. And here the Buddha gives a simile. Suppose a man set out on a journey and murderers leapt out on both sides of him. Then fear would arise in him because of that. I kind of like that simile because this is not murderers going to take your life. It's just like this practice is like taking your sense of control away. You know, you're losing things. Fear is always a sign you're losing something which you're very attached to. Things like your will, your sense of self. And that's what it's like. The fear arose. And when fear arose, the light and the vision of forms disappeared. I considered thus, suppose I shall so act that neither doubt nor inattention nor sloth and torpor nor fear will arise in me again. And to get that fear to go away, you know, you listen to things like Dhamma from somebody you can trust, you've known me a long time, and say, there's nothing to fear. You're perfectly safe. You get those nimitas coming up and they develop, you have a wonderful time. And there's no dangers at all, except for one. I always have to be honest. And what is the danger 
And when nematodes get strong, lose your hair, correct. <laughs> Voluntarily. <laughs> you want to become a monk or a nun. Anyway, oh. As the Anuruddha was abiding diligent, I considered thus, elation arose in me. You know what elation is? Yeah, it's working. Ajahnbong was right. I can do it. Yay! The wow response. And because of elation, elation, my stillness fell away. My stillness fell away. The light and the vision of forms disappeared. Suppose a man seeking one entrance to a hidden treasure came all at once upon five entrances to a treasure. Then elation would arise in them because of that. So too elation arose in me. The light and the vision of forms disappeared. I considered thus. I shall so act that neither doubt nor inattention nor fear nor elation will arise in me again. As Anirudha was abiding diligent, I considered thus inertia arose in me and because of inertia my stillness fell away when my stillness fell away the light and the vision of forms disappeared I shall so act that neither doubt nor inattention nor relation nor inertia will arise in me again and a lot of times you know that inertia I think some of you have complained about that in your meditation you're getting peaceful but it doesn't go any further it's like this really heavy ball stuck somewhere and it's inertia and I also mentioned to quite a few meditators that when the, the range retreat is just finished, the second week of my own personal retreat, I was very peaceful in my cave. It was very nice. But you could notice inertia. It wasn't going anywhere. It was nice, but something was wrong there. It was inertia. And the inertia was caused by... Um, I was wanting something else, and I couldn't see that wanting at first. But then just the idea, the memory, the wisdom, the insight coming up almost immediately, when you want something more, you cannot enjoy what you already have. That wanting was causing that inertia. And like most times, it's like the story of when you see Mara, it's only a metaphor in this case, when you see the problem, you don't have to do anything. It, it solves itself immediately. Like in the metaphor, the monk knows me, the monk knows me, and so Mara has to just disappear. It just goes immediately. And that's when just I got a lot of bliss pouring in. And that's why you know, it was so wonderful to see that and what the problem was. That's why I tell people about it. Oh yeah. Just wondering, does the Buddha say how he gets to the nimitta? No, we're just at the nimitta at the moment. Uh, yeah, and this is how actually you get there: is these three monks were living ardent, diligent, and resolute, having no arguments with each other, looking at each other with kindly eyes, living a very simple life, not worrying about whose job it was. If it needed to be done, they did it, and they acted with. Uh, with words, actions and thoughts of loving kindness both in private and in public and look on each other with kindly eyes. Mental or no, just that much. No. That will... Sorry? Virtue. Virtue, yeah. 
virtue and kindness, simplicity. Now their virtue was just immense. And so when they closed their eyes, when you meditate, how many things do we think about? A lot of times all the problems which we have, the difficulties we have, what somebody said when you had your lunch, they were looking at me in a really strange way. <laughs> or whatever, you know, exaggerating. But it's wonderful when we have this beautiful lifestyle and so beautiful that of course that these states and limiters will come up. It's not mentioned specifically whether it's breath meditation or other types of meditation, but many meditations, even meditation on the skull, will lead to a limiter. Actually, they all do, really. So anyway, another one, yeah? How elation was just wow. So it's what you add to things. The pity sukha is just naturally, it's beautiful. But you don't just go around having a party about that you've got a limiter. It's the wow response. Or like those uh, animals coming out of the forest. They're beautiful animals, incredibly delightful. That's their nature, but you don't add to it by saying, Wow, look at that. That's awesome. That destroys it. The next ones. As Anaruda, I was abiding diligent, I considered thus. Deficiency of energy arose in me, and because of deficiency of energy, my stillness fell away. When my stillness fell away, the light and the vision of forms disappeared. Suppose, to make it fair, instead of a man this time, suppose a woman were to grip a quail, a small bird, loosely. It would fly out of her hands. So to a deficiency of energy arose in me, and the light and the vision of forms disappeared. I considered thus, I shall so act that neither doubt nor inattention nor excess energy... I didn't do the excess energy. I, it is it? Yeah. Oh no, you had excess of energy. No, I just, I missed. I missed the excess of energy in 22. I skipped a paragraph. Suppose uh, a woman were to grip a quail tightly with both hands. It would die then and there. So to an excess of energy arose in me the enlightened division of forms disappeared, and I, should, I consider thus, I shall so act that neither doubt nor inattention, dot, 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 nor inertia, nor excess of energy will arise in me again. And again, this is when you hold the limiter way too tight. And of course, it crushes it. Just like you try and hold your breath too tight, and you can't maintain that. And then 23, as Anaruda was abiding diligent, I consider thus, Deficiency of energy arose in me, and because of deficiency of energy, my stillness fell away. When my stillness fell away, the light and the vision of forms disappeared. And to make it nice and fair, suppose uh, a member of the LGBTQIA plus community were to... <laughs> Am I being naughty again? <laughs> were to grip a quail loosely, it would fly out of their hands. So to a deficiency of energy arose in me, 
and the light and the vision of forms disappeared. So I can see that I should so act neither doubt nor inattention nor excess energy nor deficiency of energy will arise in me again. As an Aruta, I was abiding diligent. I considered thus, longing arose in me. And because of that longing, my stillness fell away. When my stillness fell away, the light and the vision of forms disappeared. I shall sow out the neither doubt nor inattention nor deficiency of energy no longer will arise in me again. As an Aruda, I was abiding diligent, I considered thus, perception of diversity arose in me. And because of perception of diversity, my stillness fell away. When my stillness fell away, the light and the vision of forms disappeared. I shall sow out the neither doubt nor inattention, nor longing nor perception nor diversity, not so longing nor perception of diversity will arise in me again. So what is that perception of diversity? You know, to me I always interpret that as you know, looking at inside and outside of that nimitta to find out whether it's round or square or whatever, to see whether it's big or small. And whenever you, know, you, you are told to expand the nimitta, shrink the nimitta, I don't know why I was told that, but anyway, that was, you need a perception of diversity there, not just one thing, but inside and outside, edges. That wasn't helpful. So perception of diversity, I know that one. You just watch the center of the nimitta, that's just natural. You don't worry whether it's circular or square or whatever it is. You know, you're just watching the, just the singleness of that light. It's much more beautiful, much more easy. Now the next one, this is actually the last one of these. As Anarudo, as abiding, diligent, ardent and resolute. Um, where is it gone? Uh, excessive meditation on forms arose in me. And because of excessive meditation upon forms, my stillness fell away. When my stillness fell away, the light and the vision of forms disappeared. I shall so act that neither doubt nor inattention or perception of diversity nor excessive meditation upon forms will arise in me again. Now, what is excessive uh, meditation upon forms? The last of these big um, upakalesas. When you see uh, an imitator, sometimes it is complex. Many objects there to see. And sometimes one can indulge in that. But instead of seeing many objects of the nimitta, what I call the complex nimitta, you just go into the most beautiful part of it, which is single, not many things, but just one thing, one beautiful thing. So you don't worry about the shape of it or the objects in that image, just the light. And here we go. When I ran Aruda, I understood that doubt is an imperfection of mind. I abandoned doubt. When I understood that inattention is an imperfection of the mind, an upakalesa, I abandoned that. When sloth and torpor, fear, elation, inertia, excess of energy, deficiency of energy, longing, perception of diversity, excessive meditation upon forms, is an imperfection of the mind. I abandon these. 
As an Aruta, I was abiding, diligent, ardent, resolute. I perceived light, but I did not see forms. I saw forms, but I did not see light. Even for a whole night or a whole day or a whole day and night, I thought, what is the cause and condition for this? And I considered thus. On the occasion when I do not attend to the sign, the nimitta of forms, but attend to the sign, the nimitta of light, I then perceive light, but not receive forms. On the occasion when I do not attend to the light nimitta, but attend to the form nimitta, I then see forms, but not see, perceive light, even for the whole night or the whole day or whole day and night. As an Aruta, I was abiding, diligent, ardent and resolute. I perceived limited light and saw limited forms. I see immeasurable light and saw immeasurable forms. Even for a whole night or a whole day or a whole day and night, I thought, what is the condition for this? And I considered thus, on the occasion when stillness of mind is limited, my vision is limited. With limited vision, I perceive limited light and limited forms. But on the occasion when stillness is immeasurable, my vision is immeasurable. And with immeasurable vision, I perceive immeasurable light and see immeasurable forms, even for a whole night or a whole day or a whole day and night. So when Anuruddha, I understood that doubt is an imperfection of the mind and had abandoned doubt. When I understood that inattention is an imperfection of the mind and had abandoned inattention, abandoned sloth and torpor, abandoned fear, abandoned elation, I call that even excitement, abandoned inertia, abandoned excess of energy, abandoned deficiency of energy, abandoned longing, abandoned perception of diversity, abandoned meditation on forms, and imperfection of the mind. Then I thought, I have abandoned those perfect. I have abandoned those imperfections of the mind. Let me now develop stillness in three ways. It's six minutes past five, and I haven't finished yet. Shall, shall, shall I shall I wait and finish it off in uh, the next retreat? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Very little to go. Thereupon, Anuruddha, this is after abandoning the imperfections of these nimittas. Thereupon, Anuruddha, I developed the first jhana with vitaka vichara. Vitaka is a movement of the mind onto the, the image in the first jhana, onto the bliss, and the vichara is holding onto the bliss. The vichara causes the first of those jhanas to be slightly unstable. It's a wobble, I call it. But even though it wobbles, the vichara is not strong enough, or so the wobble is not strong enough to move you too far away. The vitaka comes in almost immediately afterwards and you still stay in that jhana. I develop the stillness between the first and second jhanas. This is like the one and a half jhanas. Not a second jhana yet, not the first jhana, without vitaka, but with vichara, you're still holding on to the bliss, but not strong enough to take the attention away from the object of the one and a half jhanas. Vitaka has finished, has stopped. It is a, a very powerful perception of the Buddha to notice this. I would usually took that one and a half jhana as part of second jhana. You've got vichara there, but the mind is so still. And then I developed 
uh, stillness with rapture and that became the second jhana. Sometimes that rapture, one of the uh, parts of the second jhana is this sense of confidence and faith. You know you've let go enough, you don't have any holding on to the object, you really do let it be. You don't interfere with it at all, so it stays. And that becomes a second jhana. And without rapture, and accompanied, accompanied by enjoyment, sukha, the third jhana. Many people ask me, what's the difference between the sukha and the pity? They usually always go together. The only time they're separated is between the second and third jhana. Only when you have a long experience of third jhana will you have an idea what that difference is. And lastly, an, an, the jhana accompanied by equanimity, the fourth jhana. When Anuruddha, I had developed the first jhana, that between the first and second jhana and the other three jhanas, knowledge and vision arose in me. My deliverance is unshakable. This is my last birth. Now there is no renewal of being. That is what the Buddha said November Anuruddha was satisfied and delighted in the Buddha's words. And that was the Anuruddha Sutta. Has many parts to it, and the parts of like monkeys and elephants feeding the Buddha. And to this day that's allowable to be fed like that by by um, by animals. We're not quite sure whether it's allowable to be fed by AI, artificial intelligence. Monks often will debate that in the future. But what is possible is that you can live in a monastery. Remember this monastery where Anuruddha, Kimbala, and Nandia were staying? They only had three people there. And honestly, when you have big monasteries, they're much more difficult to actually to maintain with all the different personalities there and all the different pieces of work which need to be done than small monasteries. And sometimes I often think, yeah, we can have a big monastery to make it so that you know, there's plenty of support there. And the small monasteries, where there's only two or three nuns or something, then they can actually get support from the big monasteries. And to me that's ideal. Small little monasteries or temples so they can have a lot of peace and quiet there. And also there's the different problems which act, which happen when you start meditating. These nimittas and just the problems, they call the upa kilesa, the very refined sort of uh, defilements. And how the Buddha would explain that they need to be transcended, overcome. Imagine what they are. Or maybe it's just me, but I've found mostly it's a fear and the excitement are usually the big ones. Once those are overcome, then you know the nimitta just stays, grows, and you go into it into the jhanas. Okay? I apologize for going over time. You got a question, yeah? So now I don't need to apologize anymore, it's somebody else's fault. <laughs> yes, go on. Yes. I will say more about that because you asked. Words have meaning in different contexts. It's not the same meaning everywhere. 
And so vitaka does mean thinking in, uh, in the coarser contexts, but it does not mean thinking in the jhanas. The idea that in a jhana, or even just before a jhana, you can think in the normal meaning of that term is just uh, impossible if you've had any experience of these states. So vitaka, and this is actually how the Wisthudi Magga did describe it. It's like vitaka is hitting the bell. That's, that's vitaka is the hitting. And that's the vichara, the resonance, what happens afterwards. So this is the mind going onto the object. And vichara is like holding the object. And it's weird, but even in like a first jhana, you're really blissing out, but there's still a residual amount of holding. You haven't fully, I mean, what, 100% let go. And that's what means that you don't go to the second jhana. But after a while, you've got this the confidence, they say, comes up that you don't need to hold on. You totally let go in the second jhana. I mean, totally. That's why in that second jhana, that which you can also recognize afterwards as will, this wasn't there. It's absent. Now, in each of these jhanas, your mindfulness has just gone to a way higher level. You're incredibly clear. That's one of the reasons why, with such clarity of mind, now you can remember those states so easily. The, uh, the nearest uh, description, which is not a good description, but it's the nearest you have, is like a trauma. Only highly positive. But it just stays in your mind, you can remember it so easily for such a long time. It's like branding your mind with this bliss. So it's easy to understand. You don't have to work it out there. If you try and work it out while you're in it, you just break it apart. So just enjoy it, and afterwards, you can, what the heck was that? And you can imagine recollect it so easily. But the vitaka is like moving on to the mind and the vichara is just holding it. You haven't totally let go in the first jhana. Second jhana you have. That's just different. And the bliss which you are watching in these jhanas, the first bliss, of the first jhana, that is the bliss that your body has disappeared. It's not bothering you anymore. You're free. You don't have to stretch out your legs because your knees are just not there anymore. You don't have to scratch your ear. There is no ear to scratch. I'm getting old now, 71, and your body still starts to ache at this age. But if you get into deep meditations, no aches or pains at all. You can't even feel your body. That's one of the reasons if you have scrub typhus and you get into deep meditation, it's it actually amplifies the bliss because the contrast is so great. And then also, um, the second jhana, it's the freedom from will. That's gone. And it's blissful. It's just totally still. Nothing can move you. And that's a different flavor of bliss. And then, you can't really imagine that, but the third jhana, this thing we call rapture, a very coarse form of bliss, 
No, it is, but people say, well, they'll do me. But then that's just, that disappears. And the fourth jhana, all of those bliss and non-bliss and all that sort of stuff disappears. And it's, then when they say equanimity, that doesn't really cut it for me. That feels too cold. I prefer the English word contentment. Because contentment is much more attractive, I must admit. And the Buddha said, yeah, sukha disappears at the third jhana. But then he also says that the contentment, you have the bliss of contentment, upeka sukha. It's a different type of happiness, far more refined. And that's also, that's the purity of mindfulness. You cannot be more mindful than in the fourth jhana. That's his peak. So if you want to know what mindfulness is, get into these jhanas, and that will just give you such an amazing uh, new idea of what mindfulness is. And then in the material, they call it states, your mindfulness disappears. The mind turns off, stops, stage by stage. So mindfulness goes. That's also one of the reasons why the last of those immaterial places, neither perception nor non-perception, the mindfulness is so refined there, you cannot use that as a basis for full enlightenment. The other three you can, there's still enough stuff there to use. The best place is the fourth jhana. I should keep going on like this. So any other questions? No, good. (laughs) Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. I don't know if any of you understood that, but nevertheless you were listening very carefully, so I guess you were getting some inspiration from it. And I don't care if you didn't understand it. You have been brainwashed. I don't mind saying that, and I know it's a really great thing for you. Because one day these things will happen, and somehow or other you'll do the right thing, you press the right buttons. Because that's what Ajahn Chah did to me. I should really thank him for that. Yeah? Just wondering if I may ask, like, people had done so much work with meditation before the time of the Buddha, had they really not discovered the jhana? Is that the difference between what the Buddha brought into the world, like was... Yes, when you have time, remember that it wasn't being taught at the time. The Buddha attained a jhana even as a kid. Those experiences were available, but they weren't really taught or even sort of recommended. I haven't taught this here, but in the Chitta Samyutta, Chitta was a very well-known disciple of the Buddha. He was like a general in the army before then became a uh, disciple of the Buddha. And he went to see the leader of the Jains, Nigantanataputta. And many scholars of that time always say there's probably more Jains in India at that time than Buddhist monks. The Jains were more popular. 
I'm not sure if that's true, but certainly they were incredibly popular, the Jains. And somebody was asking uh, Niganta Nataputta, otherwise known as Mahavira, and then asked him, he said, this idea that you can stop Vitaka Vichara, you stop all thinking, what do you reckon about that? And they were discussing this. And so Chitta came in, and so Niganta Nataputta asked him, look, you're a very well-known disciple of the Buddha. What do you think? Do you believe that you can stop thought in your meditation? And Chitta said, no, I don't believe that at all. Niganta Nataputta was so uh, praising of, Nig- of Chitta, said, he's a, a very close disciple of the Buddha, and even he says that you can't do that, it's impossible. Niganta Nataputta says, it's like trying to put your fist in the Ganges River and stop the current. It cannot be done. And even uh, Chitta, the householder, agrees with me on that one. You're a good disciple. And then Chitta says, yes, I don't believe it, because I know it. I can get into the jhanas, and I can actually stop all the thoughts. I said I didn't believe it, because now I know it as a fact. And then Nigantanata Buddha said, these disciples of the Buddha are so sneaky and difficult to have, difficult to have a conversation with. Because <laughs> Nigantanata Buddha was embarrassed. But the reason I tell that story is even the leader of the Jains didn't think it was possible to get into a jhana where Vitakarichara stops. Even he didn't have that experience. So it wasn't popular and there wasn't many. Oh no, go on that one. Is Alara Kalama Uddhakarama Puta. All the immaterial states have to be dependent upon the jhanas. I cannot see that they can be independent of those. So if the Buddha really did sort of get um, the jhanas under Alarakalama Uddhakarama Puta, why the heck did he start thinking about when he was a kid to remember his jhanas? The implication is, there's many other supporting evidence for this, Alarakalama Uddhakarama Puta, what they experienced was not the real thing. Just like even today, Many teachers, they always talk about jhanas, but sometimes they call it jhana light, L-I-T-E. It's an American invention. And I never saw the Buddha talk about jhana light. What it is, is some teachers, they want to experience jhana so much. So we're not quite like Ajahn Brahm would describe jhanas, but it still counts. So no. The same with the immaterial attainments. They may be similar, they're not the real thing. Okay? Can I go? Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And you don't have to agree with me. I'm very glad that people can argue with me because that's the way you find out for yourself. And the best way to argue with me is get these jhanas yourself. (laughs) 